me apologize uh, for those of you who are looking for seating. Um, I asked Phil Rosberg, I said, can we put more seats up? And he said, we could, but I don't want to. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's why it happened that way. So you can speak to him afterward. And just uh, if you want to write letters to the conference president, he'd appreciate that too. So I was a late teenager and I was visiting some friends and uh, there were a couple that had a, oh, they, they, uh, they, oh, I'm ringing. In my heart there rings a microphone. So is that working okay now? Are we all right? Yeah? Oh, we'll see. All right. Yeah. yeah Joe's had something against me ever since I left a little something in the house that he lives in. See? Yeah, yeah, and I've been praying for him. Um, so this couple kind of took me in. I had a rough childhood at home, and, and it didn't work real well for me. And, and uh, my English teacher, actually, and her husband said, you should come over to our house a lot. And so I did. And, and uh, they were invited by a new couple that had just joined their local church to go over and, uh, and eat dinner with them. And and so uh, they said, uh, would you like to come with us? And I said, well, these people don't know me. And, and they said, yeah, they don't know us very well either. In fact, let's play a joke on them. And I said, uh, okay, what's the joke? What do you want to do? And they said, why don't we, when we go to their house, we're going to tell them. Uh, they know Allison. They had a little daughter that was, I don't know, uh, four years old. And, uh, and they said, why don't, we, why don't we tell them that you are our idiot son who's just home for the weekend from the sanitarium? And, and I said, really? And they said, yeah, you just act out the part. You look, anyway. And uh, so, so I said, okay, yeah, that sounds great. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do that. And, and so we go up to their house, and, uh, and they knock on the door, and Dave and Lynn Lamont, that was their name, they open the door, and, and they look at them, and then they look at me towering over everybody, and, and Jim, the, the man of the house uh, uh, that, that I went with, um, said, uh, hey, Dave and Lynn, uh, um, we're so glad you invited us over. We forgot to tell you that our idiot son is home this weekend from the sanitarium, and he's with us. And uh, they, they looked at me, and so by now, um, Allison is holding my hand, the little girl's holding my hand, and I, and I just look like this, down a lot. And sometimes an occasional piece of drool will fall out, and, <laughs> and, uh, and so they didn't know what to do, so they looked and they said, well, okay, um, well, come on in, we're glad you're here. And, and Allison leads me around the house like this, and, and they keep looking at me, wondering, is this real, is this not real? She had, they were just moving into this house, and they had, most of the furniture was all set up, but they had this antique mirror that was on the ground in the living room, and it was just sitting flat on the ground, and I guess it was worth some money. And, uh, and Allison would lead me by this mirror, and I would teeter as though I was going to fall onto the mirror, and I could hear Lynn go, <gasps> and I would just almost, but I wouldn't, and, and we get sitting down, and Allison, at four years old, she was way into this, and, uh, and so she puts a napkin, like a bib, on me, and she starts feeding me at the table, and I'm chewing my food, and, and Dave and Lynn are trying to carry on a conversation and not look at me, but look at me, and, and it's, just getting, it's just getting awkward, and finally, Jim and Pam can't take it anymore. They start laughing, and they said, okay, he is an idiot, but he's not our son, and he's not home from the sanitarium. And David, oh, thank goodness, they said, uh, we just didn't know if you were serious or not. And, and it, it was great. I, it was maybe one of my favorite evening meals. Um, <laughs> playing the fool was fun uh, for a moment or two, um, but... Uh, it gets real serious when God plays the fool. Real serious. Uh, if you have a Bible or a device, uh, and uh, I, I think you know what thing you're supposed to be on, you know, because um, Phil, I think, came up and yelled at you or somebody did. Um, Luke 14. If you'll turn to Luke 14. We're going to be in Luke chapter 14 and Luke chapter 15 today. 
and uh, I want you to, uh, to read along with me as we go through Luke chapters 14 and 15. Starts out like this. One Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. In front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling. Some of your Bibles will say palsy, probably, um, of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, everybody sitting around the Sabbath dinner table, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Pretty simple question, right? Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts of the law this, but they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, I love that, that taking hold of the man. Jesus didn't just across the table yell something. Taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. First thing you need to know about this story as it unfolds is somebody snuck in. Somebody found a back door open and they snuck in and they got to the Sabbath dining table. It's important to realize that there is no way somebody that was non-normative, somebody that was abnormal was invited to that banquet no way. Somehow a lesser person had snuck in to get this healing touch, to get an encouraging word from Jesus. A person of lesser value, a person of lesser status would not be seeking this from anyone in the local church. The local church didn't invite them. They were never invited to the potluck at the Pharisee's house afterward, after church. They were never invited to these things because, well, obviously, God was looking down on them and had cursed them with whatever ailment they have, whatever non-normative thing they ended up with. They aren't the people that really religious people should hang out with. Jesus both touched the man and then healed the man on Sabbath. I want you to get this idea of Sabbath going in your head. It's the right day to do that, I think. Let's go to verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked the, wedding, picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. So Jesus is looking around, and back, back in the day, um, your seat at the table, where you sat, um, uh, uh, kind of signified how the person hosting the party felt about you. And if you had a place of prominence, you were really close to the, to the person um, that was throwing the party. And the farther down the table and around the table you were, the less important you were. And everybody was scrambling to get the most important place. When someone invites you, verse 8, to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. So, if so, the host will, who invited both of you will come and say to you, give that person your seat. Then, humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. That would feel pretty good. For all of those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to the host, and I want you to take note of this. Again, this is Sabbath potluck after church. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back, and then you'll be repaid. Verse 13. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Now, to a Pharisee, to a church member in Jesus' day, basically what Jesus is saying is, invite the people that have been cursed 
by God. Invite the people that the church has kicked to the curb, that the church wants nothing to do with. These are the people that you should invite to Sabbath lunch. And verse 14, and you will be blessed if you do this. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus is reminding his host, his well-to-do host, that the Sabbath was designed to be the great equalizer. Now, we don't realize this very much. The very first idea that we have of the Sabbath comes at the end of creation week. And in Genesis 2, it says, God rested from his work and and he made this day special. He made it holy. It really doesn't give you any rules for the Sabbath or anything like that. It just says, God just rested and and, and he made it holy. And there's some deep theological implications with that, but we're not going to go there today. The very next time we hear about the Sabbath is all the way through the book of Genesis And halfway through the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 16, there the Sabbath is just basically, stay in your tents, don't go out. That's the rule for the Sabbath. You Just stay in your tent, don't go out. And if you go out and you gather sticks, bad things are going to happen to you, like you'll get dead and stuff like that. But then we come to the Ten Commandments. In the fourth commandment, the Sabbath takes on this completely new meaning. In this description of the Sabbath, that God writes on stone with his own finger, we see the Sabbath is not just a time that God allows me to rest, it's also a time that I'm supposed to give rest to the people around me. Now, when we think of rest, we think of maybe taking a nap or not working. But really, rest is relief from the burden that we carry during the week. So God says in the fourth commandment, listen, I want you to have relief from your burdens, but I also want you to give the people in your life, the people around you, a rest from their burdens also. According to the fourth commandment, the Sabbath is a 24-hour period of time when I'm supposed to treat everyone within my sphere of influence like God treats me. See, the first three commandments are all about my relationship with God. The first three, no other gods before me, don't make a big ceramic frog and bow down to it and say, oh, you are God, and, uh, and, and don't take the Lord's name in vain. Last six commandments are all about my relationship with you. Um, I'm not supposed to kill you, I guess. And uh, I'm not supposed to sleep with your wife. And I'm not supposed to steal your things. Those are the commandments that have to do with me and you. First three, me and God. Last six, me and you. The fourth commandment shows up and something really cool happens. The fourth commandment shows up as the great equalizer because it's my relationship with God and my relationship with man. It becomes God's desire, as the fourth commandment develops in the history of the Bible, that people who have especially difficult circumstances are to be taken in and treated well on holy days, especially on the Sabbath. The major prophets begin to include those who the law discludes. As you, as you read through the Bible, you start to notice this. The eunuch, people with deformities, Orphans, widows are now not uh, just uh, discluded on the Sabbath anymore. Now they're included on Sabbath celebrations. They're mentioned by the prophets as people who are to receive special attention from the people of Israel, especially in their Sabbath festivities. You see, the Sabbath has become the great equalizer. On the Sabbath, there is no Greek, there is no Jew, there is no male, there is no female, there is no slave, there is no free. Everybody is supposed to be one on the Sabbath. Jesus becomes the embodiment of the Sabbath. He becomes a Sabbath with flesh and bones. Because in Christ, there is no Greek, there is no Jew, no male, nor female, no slave, no free. Jesus has become my Sabbath, our Sabbath, 
from any superiority complex that we might have about ourselves or toward other people. But the idea of Sabbath by Jesus' time had taken a wicked, wicked turn. No longer were people who were not blessed by God invited into fellowship. The Sabbath had become a time for the fortunate to gather together. You know, the ones that dress like I'm dressed now. The ones that are able to... uh... Are we okay? All right. Am I going to get shocked? I'm going to stand over here. The Sabbath had become this time for for the people that can afford to celebrate Sabbath, to celebrate Sabbath. And and in Jesus' time, if you uh, had a limp in your walk, or if you didn't have very much money in your bank account, or if you dressed a little differently, you weren't included. The Sabbath was a time to disclude, to push people away. These people were considered despised by God. If you were non-normative, if you were not like you were supposed to be, you were despised by God and you were despised by the church and you would never, ever be invited to the banquet table. Jesus calls them out at the table on this twisting of what the Sabbath was really meant to be. Verse 15 When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. (laughs) And then Jesus tells them this great parable. He says, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he uh, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, everything's ready. And you know the story, right? There's all these excuses. Well, I was going to come, but now I can't because I got to wash the car. I got to do my homework. I got to do the dishes. Oh, we're having such a problem at home with the dog. It's got fleas. So we're going to stay home and take care of the dog's fleas. And they go back to the master. Nobody wants to come. You invited all these people. Nobody wants to come. What should we do? Go out into the, what, the highways and the byways and invite everybody. And they go do this. There's still more room. Go out and invite everybody. In the book of Matthew, Jesus says something really cool. He says, go out and invite the righteous and the wicked, he says, into this banquet. Because everybody's welcome at my table. Bring them all in. Again, the Sabbath is supposed to be the great equalizer. One day out of the week when we can recognize that all men and women are created equal and deserve a break from whatever burden they might be bearing. I was in uh, Asheville this last week and I got to get it here on my phone. I saw something in the storefront that reminded me of Sabbath. I want to read it to you. It's past all the beautiful pictures of these lakes and waterfalls that I've seen all week. I think. I think this should be the sign at every church. Here's what it says. Looks like that. We welcome all races and ethnicities, all religions, all countries of origin, all gender identities, all sexual orientations, all abilities and disabilities, all spoken languages, all ages, everyone. We stand here with you. You are safe here. That should be posted in the front of every single church. That's Jesus' sign. I had people when I interviewed uh, at, the, at the church that I'm pastoring now, um, the college church at the PUC, at Pacific Union College, and during the interview they said, uh, they said things, um, and, and I don't mean to make this the issue, please don't think that I'm doing that, but they said, uh, um, what, what, what would you do if a, if a gay couple came to church, they said. What would you do if a gay couple came to church and everybody knew they were gay, what would you do? And I said, well, I'd stand at the door and I'd say, you're not welcome here. And they all went like this in the interview. And I said, okay, I'm joking. I want everybody to come into church. I want everybody to come to my church and listen to stories about Jesus. Everybody. I don't care who you are. I want you there. And this is the message of Jesus to the Pharisee at the table who excluded so many 
people. Everything that happens in Luke 14, this whole conversation about how we're supposed to treat those who are less than us in our minds, how we're supposed to treat those people that the church may have kicked to the curb or looked down on, you know, the the non-normative people. All of this takes place around the table where Jesus has been invited to eat. Okay, so I want you to get this set in your mind before we go to chapter 15. This whole conversation about about who you should have over to your house to eat, who's allowed around the table. Jesus is scolding the rich people, the snooty people, the, I can't believe you would hang out with those kind of people, people. He says, you got to stop this. Everybody should be welcome. He teaches them and they're offended by his teaching. Now this spills right over into chapter 15. Watch how chapter 15 unfolds. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Isn't that just an awesome picture? If you knew me, like, really well, right now I'm kind of all holy because I'm a pastor and I'm a guest speaker at the camp meeting, but if you followed me around, like, for a couple days, you would know that I'm a tax collector, sinner kind of a guy. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the guys that invited Jesus over to the banquet in 14, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Are you one of those mutterers? I can't believe it. Are you one of them people? Stop it ugly. It's unbecoming of a Christ follower. If you're one of those, oh, I can't believe what the pastor said to church. <laughs> Stop it. Take another bite of cottage cheese loaf or whatever and fill your mouth up with something good. Stop with the... <laughs> they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Remember, this is a carryover from the last chapter. He eats with them. Jesus has just been teaching the people that he was with that the Sabbath is supposed to be a time when people start to see and treat each other as equal instead of having these levels of of holy and unholy. Everybody's burdens are supposed to be lifted up on the Sabbath day. He just gets done teaching them this, and what are they doing? I can't believe who he's eating with. In the Bible, eating with another person is an act of intimacy. You can't get more intimate, okay, maybe a little more intimate, but, but sitting down at a table and dining with another person is an intimate act. It even is in our culture, isn't it? And it's kind of weird. Like if, if some guy is interested in a girl, what does he do? He, oh, I was wondering if maybe you'd like to go and eat with me. That's our line, come and eat with me. It's an intimate thing we're asking. And it's weird. Because what do we do? We go with this person that we're really interested in, but we don't know very well, and we sit across the table from them, and we watch them put food in their mouth and chew it and swallow it. What a weird thing we do. And depending on how they chew and swallow, they might get a second date. It's an act of intimacy to eat, to dine with somebody. And here Jesus is with tax collectors and sinners. You know what a tax collector is. They're just a traitor. They're somebody that used to be in the church and with the in crowd, and somehow they're betraying the church now. They're betraying the in crowd, and and they're in collusion with the enemy, and, and oh man, are they frowned upon. They're not welcomed in the temple. They can't go to church. Nobody wants them around. They're unclean. And Jesus is eating with the people that aren't welcomed in church. 
But who are these sinners that Jesus was dining with and including into his circle of intimacy, his circle of friendship? Well, they weren't the righteous, that's for sure. In fact, they were the wicked. You remember uh, uh, in Matthew where Jesus says, go out and get the righteous and the wicked and bring them into the, the banquet table? They were the lawbreakers. They were the people who knew what the law said. They knew what they were supposed to do. But for whatever reason, they decided to break the law on a regular basis. They just weren't good at keeping all the rules. The word for sin in the Bible is hamartia, the, the Greek word hamartia, and it means to miss the mark. They were missing the mark left and right. In fact, they weren't even aiming for the bullseye anymore. They were just sinners. And this particular thought, in the, in the context of what's being talked about, they weren't just sinners. They were sinning sexually. Boy, you want to bring up a taboo thing in the church nowadays. Talk about how people are sinning sexually. For some reason, that carries a lot more weight sin-wise in our culture and the way we think of things than if somebody's gossiping or if somebody's uh, uh, ditched uh, the, the IRS with their taxes and, and cheated. Or, boy, that sexual sin, that really gets us riled up, especially, especially when it's with the not normal people. You know who I'm talking about. The ones who should all be put on an island anyway. The accusation from the righteous was that Jesus was hanging around with these kind of people. And he was dining with them in an intimate way. And they're muttering about it and they're complaining about it and they're saying, well, I've never... And Jesus stands up and says, well, maybe you should sometime. So how does Jesus respond to these complaints? How does Jesus respond to, to, I can't believe who he's dining with? He tells three stories. The first story, parable of the lost coin, verse 8. Or suppose a woman has... Ten silver. Oh, I'm sorry. The first story is the parable of the sheep, verse four. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't uh, doesn't he leave the ninety nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Whenever he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors. Rejoice with me! I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who don't need to repent. One of the things that we don't realize about this, we always see this picture. You remember? Um, I, I like it that they put these pictures of the friendly Jesus out. You know, the good-looking guy with the long hair and the short beard, and he's kind of smiling, and yeah, he's kind of good-looking, and I admit it. And uh, and and. And uh, they have this one picture of him, and he's got this little lamb. And you know, oh, it's the parable of the lost sheep. He's got this little lamb. The word here is not lamb. If you go into the ancient world and look to see how this parable is depicted, the shepherd isn't carrying a tiny little lamb on his shoulders. He's got this enormous sheep on his shoulders. And he's bearing this burden and he's trying to get down the trail and it's weighing him down. He has really had to work to go get this sheep and bring it back. It's painful. And when he gets back, there's a celebration. And then there's that lost coin, the woman that's, that's, that loses a coin, and there's all kinds of stories about what that coin could be, but for sure she finds it, and there's this huge celebration. And then there's the parable of the lost son. You know the story. It's probably been told at this camp meeting every year in this department for the past 30 years, Right? Man has two sons. Younger one says to his dad, I hate you. I hate your rules. You never let me do what all my other friends get to do. I want my inheritance, and I want it now. 
And the father does something that I would never do. My kid does that to me, and I'm telling you, I turn him around, kick him in the butt, get to your room and you're not getting any supper. Father goes, okay. And he gives him the inheritance. When are you supposed to get an inheritance? Yeah, after somebody dies, right? Yeah. So the kid goes out and does all this wild living. Um, the wild living is interesting in Greek. It's, it's porneia that he does with the money. Porneia. Porneia. Do you understand? Okay. We get the word pornography from it. This is what he does with the money, this horrible, licentious, just gross stuff, right? And, uh, and then he loses all his money. You know the story. And he ends up um, in the pig trough, and he ends up going, oh, man, I'm just going to go home and get my dad, and my dad's going to hire me. And, and, uh, and, and uh, the, the father sees him, remember, and he jumps up and he runs to him, right? And, uh, and this is, this is uh, everything is made better. You know the, the parable, right? So here's what Jesus was saying, and here's what you don't know about the parable. Jesus stands up when he tells this parable, and he says, church, church leaders, deacons, faithful attenders, you complain about me, including those who you think aren't worthy of my friendship and fellowship, but you should be the ones seeking them out. You should be the ones having them at your table. You're complaining about me, but I'm setting the example. You should be the ones going after these people that make you feel uncomfortable. You should be the ones doing this. Jesus is calling out the church of his day. He's saying, listen, stop with the segregation. Stop with the haves and the have-nots. And his parable indicts them for their crimes. And they're listening to this and their blood is boiling. Because they know full well that they are the older brother in this parable. Now I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't finish the parable. At the end of the parable of the prodigal son, there is a discussion going on between the father and the older son and it's never resolved. The church has, has got this in front of them, and, and, and they have to, how are they going to end this parable? So here's what you don't know about the parable. This is how it's supposed to be told. When a young son goes to a father and says, I want my inheritance, first of all, he's declaring the father dead. You are dead to me. Second thing is, when he, he says, I want my inheritance, this isn't money in a safe, in a wall. The father who has means in this parable is integral to the economy of the town. He has to actually take time to liquidate all of his assets so he can give a third of everything that he has to this boy. This doesn't just affect the, the father's bank account. This actually affects the whole town. Everybody's affected by this. People in town are losing their jobs. They're losing their income because of what this snot-nosed little brat does. And when he leaves with all this money... It ruins the economy. It takes years for the economy to recover. All because of one decision. So when the boy comes back from the far country, what's supposed to happen? Here's what's supposed to happen. Are there stairs? I'm going to go up here so you can see. Oh, it's a long way up. When the boy comes back into town... He is covered in pig stuff. And he's ragging and tattered. He's got no money. And everybody knows who he is because he ruined the economy. He is the bane of that little town's existence. He walks into town 
And the first people that are going to notice him are the children. And the children would start to sing a song, something like this. The fool is back in town. The fool is back in town. Look, everybody, the fool is back in town. And as they're singing, they'll throw little rocks at the, at the boy as he's walking toward town. And they'll sing and they'll throw, the fool is back in town, the fool is back in town. As the ruckus starts to grow, the adults will start to hear what's going on. And they'll look up from whatever they're doing. And they'll see the boy. And they will join in in the singing and the rock throwing. The fool is back in town. The fool is back in town. Look, everybody. <laughs> the fool is back in town. The boy will be escorted by the crowd to the center square of the town where the town lead elder will meet him. And the lead elder will have a pot, a ceramic pot in his hand. And he'll hold it above his head. And he will smash the pot at the foot of the boy. And the whole town will say, Kazaza! 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 Which is this boy's message. You get your hind end out of town, and you go get a job somewhere, and when you earn the money you took from us, plus interest, you can come back into town, and then maybe we'll accept you after you pay us. This is what's supposed to happen. But notice Jesus' parable. While the boy is still on the outskirts of town, the father runs to the boy. Now you need to know what this means. They didn't wear trousers or shorts like we do. They wore a long garment that went down to the ground. What the father had to do to get to his son before the church did, he had to pull up his garment and bare his legs. And he had to run this old man with his legs exposed which was a signal to anybody watching that he had lost his mind. And the children would have looked and seen the father before they saw the son, and they would have pointed at the father and started laughing and saying, look at the fool, he's lost his mind. Look at the fool, he's lost his mind. And they would have thrown little rocks at him. And the adults would have looked on and shaken their heads. Oh, look at the fool. He's lost his mind. The father is bringing the ire of the church upon himself to protect his son from the church. And he gets to his son and he throws his arms around him. And your English Bible says, and he kissed him. In Greek it says, he kissed him, and he kissed him, and he kissed him, and he kissed him, and he kissed him. And he puts a ring on his finger, and he puts sandals on his feet, because only slaves are barefoot. And he puts the best robe, the robe of, of his righteousness around this boy. And he comes back, and he says, where can I have a party? Let's kill the fatted soybean. Let's really do it up. <laughs> and there's singing, and there's dancing, I mean, choreography, and there's... And there's, there's all of this is happening, this huge celebration. And while the celebration is going on, he was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. Woohoo! Let's party! The older brother is out in the field doing what he's supposed to do because the older brother has never broken a rule, he's never done a wrong thing. He has been. Perfect, as far as anybody would know. 
he hears this ruckus going on down at the house, and he makes his way down to the house, and he says to a servant, what's going on in there? Your brother showed up. And your dad, you wouldn't believe what he did. He lifted up his garment and he showed his legs and he bared them and he played the fool. Can you believe that? And he got to your brother before we could. And guess what he did? He didn't kick him out and tell him to go. He didn't kazaza. He invited him into the house and he's having a huge banquet. They killed the fatted soybean. There is cottage cheese loaf like you wouldn't believe. Now I want you to notice something what the brother does. The brother, the church, doesn't go in and celebrate. Go tell my dad I'm out here. Now, this is the second time the father plays the fool. See, in that culture, the older brother was to stand behind the father and celebrate the people that are being celebrated. He is to serve the father, he's to serve the guests, and then he will have a seat after there's some service next to the father, and he can celebrate too. This is what everybody knows is supposed to happen. Everybody knows this. But he doesn't go in and do this. And that act of rebellion, there's only one answer. In that time and in that culture, the father is to lean over to his head servants and say, go get my son, beat him, throw him in a closet, and I'll deal with him later. That's what the father's supposed to do. But for the second time, the father plays the fool. There is a rumor in the, around the table, the older son is out there and he won't come in. And the father walks out to meet with this son. Hey, son, come into the banquet. You don't know what he did. He took all that money. He ruined the economy. He did pornea. I've never done pornea. I've never been on one of those sites. <laughs> Bible.com, that's all I look at. And you're going to throw a party for him? Oh, son. He was, he was dead. Now he's alive. Come in and celebrate. And that's where the parable ends. The church is standing outside while Jesus is partying inside, deciding if the people around the table are worthy of their presence. What have we done? What have we done? Who have we become? Who's excluded from your fellowship? Who would you never be caught dead with? Who is it that would walk into your church that would turn heads and make people mutter? Who's not welcome? What's their sin? so grievous to you that you won't go in and eat that slaughtered soybean. Now, I don't know who you are. I mean, maybe you're like me. Pre-Christ, I was the one out in the pig trough. Pornea. <laughs> Whole thing. You name it. Yeah, I did it. And then I got holy and became churched put all those things behind me. And I'll admit it, I've, I've had times in my life where I've looked at certain kinds of people and went, Humph. <laughs> you know, I've gotten moose nostrils. You know what moose nostrils are. 
That's when somebody comes into church and you look out at the congregation and they're going, Who's not welcome in your church? Who's not welcome around your table? Who is your in church inviting to the banquets? Who are you feeding? Yourselves and your friends? Who's out there in your community that needs a touch from Jesus, that needs a seat at the banquet table that just never gets an invitation? Who have we become? A club for the righteous? or a mobile clinic for the world. We're going to sing a song, and then I want to make an appeal.
the church, the older brother, looked at Jesus and said, He's the younger brother. Look what He's done. And the church poured its scorn out on that younger brother. And they nailed him to a cross. They poured all of their fury and all of their hate and, and, and they called him the other, the non-normative, the one that's not like us. And they nailed him to the cross. And they said, we don't want to have anything to do with you. Church, we got to stop doing that. We have to stop excluding. We have to stop nailing people to the cross because they're not like we think they should be. Jesus never nailed a soul to a cross. That's all he did was say, hey, come on in. There's room at my table. Go out and get the righteous and the wicked. Go out and get the Democrats and the Republicans. Go out and get the straights and the gays. Go out and get the fat and the skinny, the tall and the short, the dark and the light. Get them all and bring them around my table because everybody's welcome. We got to stop standing outside and wondering if we should go in. And we just need to go in and be a part of the banquet. And we need to bring as many people in as we can. There's no other way to be a Christian. I don't know if you're out in the far country and you've been leading a wild life or if you're that older brother standing there and looking and wondering what you should do. But I do know this. In both cases, God played the fool for you so that you could have a place at the banquet table. Come, sit, and eat.